Well, good morning. We're going to get started this morning. Thank you for joining us for our special Pinewood Derby edition of the School of the Word. Uh, who knows what's going to happen today. I noticed they put safety cones around the podium. And I don't know if that's just to illustrate the danger of the concepts we're dealing with, but please remember all of your, your safety protection principles as we venture into what we're handling uh, today. Uh, well, we had said that we would seek to do some, some handling of some concepts and some Q&A uh, this morning, maybe some live Q&A. And unlike uh, the promises of God, uh, that may prove to be just empty words, honestly. Uh, so we'll see. What I've done, you'll, you'll notice in your notes, I've got some boxes there that represent questions that were sent in ahead of time. So that's going to kind of frame our discussion and in the unlikely event that there's time left over for anything else, uh, we, we'll do some, some live Q&A and maybe we'll allow ourselves to go over a little bit for those who want to stick around for that. So that's the hope for, for today. But, but the goal is to address some things that are connected to the truths that we have interacted with in this class, but that we haven't really addressed head on. Uh, so, you know, uh, Bill helped us move through those, those five points of the doctrines of grace and just did an excellent job uh, presenting scriptural clarity on that. Uh, last week we, we took some time to look at what, some passages that are sometimes raised by people who have questions and well, what about this verse and what about this one and how does the doctrine of election relate to this and so we discussed some of that uh, last week but, but this week want to handle a couple of topics that uh, they're, they're connected to things like election and they, they tend to come up in the back of someone's mind when they hear these truths but we just haven't had the chance to address some of them head on from, from the Bible and interact with those concepts. So that's the, the goal for this morning and, and, and to address in particular the issue of, of this relationship, this, this biblical tension uh, between God's sovereignty over everything that happens and, and our responsibility and, and what implications that has for something like free will. And, and that's something that a lot of people have had questions about. And so that, that's the hope for this morning. And just to, to, to lay a foundation that maybe helps us think through that. And, and it's, it, the nature of the case is this is a little philosophical philosophical and how you interact with that. And uh, that's unavoidable because people come with philosophical assumptions to this discussion. They just don't realize that what they have are philosophical assumptions uh, because it just seems natural for them to think that way. And so some of what we'll do today, we'll interact with, with the scripture a little bit and some of it will be teasing out thinking in these categories. That's just to, to help us uh, to understand this. But, you know, there, there's this, this tendency to affirm one truth and, and deny another in, in doing so. And, and the Bible calls us to, to see uh, God in control over everything that happens, uh, a God who reigns, who's really in charge over the universe, who is accomplishing his plan and purposes in our lives, but at the same time calls us to be responsible with the, the choices and, and actions that, that we pursue. And, and that matters, and our prayers matter, and, and what we do uh, matters, and, and, and the Bible never presents one instead of the other. It presents both to us. But there is a tendency uh, for, for some people to uh, deny 
God's complete sovereignty in, in the way that we have been discussing it uh, because of this concept of free will and say, well, well, hasn't God given us free will and wouldn't God want to respect people's free will? And so what implications would that have for how God has planned for salvation and planned for the events in our lives? Uh, on the other hand, you know, some who come into contact with this clear picture of election and a clear portrait of of God's providence over everything that takes place, uh, they, they kind of take this antagonistic posture toward free will. And then maybe assume, well, well, I guess free will is just out of the picture altogether. And uh, what we're going to address this morning is it, it matters how you define free will, and that matters how you answer that, that question. Uh, but, but, but this is a tension that the Bible presents to us, and, and a guy named Scott Christensen came out with a book uh, just a few months back, and it was titled, What About Free Will? reconciling our choices with God's sovereignty. And he writes, Biblical Christianity makes two indisputable affirmations, yet not without generating fierce controversy. First, God controls, in some sense, all that transpires in time, space, and history, including the course of human lives. Second, human beings are responsible agents who freely choose the direction that their lives take. Our, inability, our, our ability to make meaningful choices that impact history as it unfolds is what separates us from every other creature. On the surface, these two truths appear to be in conflict with each other. How can God direct the path of human history and yet humans remain free to choose their own course of action? So we're going to talk about pulling these things together this morning. But first, right, is, is that true? Are both of these taught in, in Scripture? Let's just do a quick little overview of that. So first, uh, exhaustive divine sovereignty. And, and we can't spend the time uh, making this biblical case, but just pulling from a few uh, Scripture passages that, that present a portrait of a God who is in control, complete control over all people and events that happen in history. Ephesians 1.11 in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. All right, so there's that word predestination again that we have to, to grapple with. But notice how it's described. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All right, and so... Paul's got this category here. He's got this category for the counsel of God's will. And he places everything underneath that. Everything that happens under, under heaven happens according to what God has willed and purposed to take place, according to Paul in Ephesians 1.11. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all He pleases. Right? It doesn't say He tries to do. He hopes to accomplish if He's successful and if we cooperate with Him. It just tells us He does it. He's sovereign. Uh, and, and whenever He desires to see take place in this world... He he is able to accomplish it and pulls it off. Uh, Daniel 4, verse 34 says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And in the context for this just makes us remarkable because this is a lived reality for the speaker here. This is Nebuchadnezzar and he is made insane by God because of, you know, he rose up in his pride, thinking he was somebody, thinking he was a mover and shaker in the kingdoms of the world. And God says, hey, guess what? You're going to eat grass for a while, and then you'll see how important you are. And then when his sanity returns, he makes about the most sane statement in the Bible. 
And it's, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Whatever God wants to do, he does it infallibly. And nobody can put that decision under review. Nobody can say, hey, time out, God. You, you just crossed a line there. Right? That's what Nebuchadnezzar recognizes. And he had experienced that personally. Proverbs 16.33, really interesting statement. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Notice how meticulous this presentation of God's control is. Right, the, the rolling of the dice. I was playing the board game Clue last night and, and that, that die would roll a four, like, I don't know, eight out of ten times. And so that, that, become, that becomes suspicious, right? It's, what's going on here? Who, who's weighted this thing? Uh, well, weighted dice or unweighted dice, the result of that roll, Proverbs is saying, God determined that. I mean, it's something as seemingly inconsequential as rolling dice in a board game, or more likely in this event, rolling dice that's going to determine the decision of some sort of government because they're not sure what to do. Let's just roll the dice. And God is in that, in its every result. Now maybe that makes sense to us because, you know, dice doesn't have free will. So he can just roll it, play with it. What about you and I? Are we dice that God rolls? Well, look what he says in Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. It doesn't get more personal and intimate than that, than the thoughts of our heart, the inclinations of our desires. And he's saying that's like water that God's turning. He's routing it to exactly where he wants it to go. Right, just just remarkable. Uh, a, a text that came out of the Reformation, the British Reformation in particular, is called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and and just really excellent document for summarizing what 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 about the grace of God and the sovereignty of God were recovered at the time of the Reformation. And they say, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely, in other words, there was nothing constraining God to do this, he freely and unchangeably ordained whatever comes to pass. Right, that is a strong view of the sovereignty of God. Now, that view uh, is, is sometimes referred to as divine determinism. That God has, in some sense, determined everything that is to take place. But they go on to say, yet he ordered all things in such a way that he is not the author of sin, nor does he force his creatures to act against their wills, Neither is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Right? Second causes meaning the fact that you and I make decisions 
And our lives have, you know, our decisions have an impact on, on our own lives and other people. We're secondary causes in that sense. And that's not removed. It's not like God is just walking down a row of dice and knocking over each, uh, not roll dice, uh, dominoes. I'm thinking about dice still. Uh, just knocking over every piece individually, right? The, the, those, those causes really do matter. But he's designed the chain to operate a certain way. And, and it says that uh, he doesn't force people to act against their will. Now, this is mysterious to us. And, and, and what's important to remember, and the reason why I said that God has determined in some sense everything that's happened, is because God is the creator. And we're the creature, right? Just fundamental distinction in the Bible there. God's order of existence is it's on an entirely different plane than ours. And so for us to think, if I'm going to cause something to take place, or if I'm going to determine for something to happen, and I, I'm going to make you do that, then I, I have to do it against your will. I've got to some way exert some sort of physical force. I have to constrain you. I have to put you in a box somewhere, and that's how I can determine what's going to happen. God doesn't have to do any of that, right? Because he, he doesn't exist on the same plane that, that we do and so he's able to bring about what he intends in a way that doesn't do violence to people's wills and choices. Alright, let's let's look at this category here of meaningful human choice. Is that taught in the Bible? And most people take that as a given, but let's just uh, see where this is established. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death. Blessing and curse. God, God's saying, hey, I'm giving you options here. And then he says, therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So there's, there's an implication for their choice. If you choose life, then what will result from that is you'll live. And your offspring will live. You'll, you'll have blessing. And he's also implying there is that this choice matters. What you do with this, you could choose life, you could choose death. And he's appealing to them. He's saying, make a good choice here. Because your choice matters. It's not done away with. Second Chronicles 6 verse 8. God says to David, he says, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Right, where's that interesting? Well, who's David? He's the king. He's the king whose heart God turns like water. And yet here, God is saying, hey, what's in your heart? He's commending him. It's good that that was in your heart. He's saying that there's something meaningful about David and, and, and his decision here. And, and he's responsible for the choices that he's, he's making. And on the other hand, God holds people responsible for what isn't in their heart. Jeremiah 35, just happened to read this this week. Verse 15, I've, I've sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying... Turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them and then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to you and your fathers. But you did not incline your ear or listen to me. God's saying, I gave you every opportunity. I sent prophets to you. I brought an appeal to you. But you didn't find it in your heart. You didn't incline your ear to listen and obey, and he's holding them responsible for that, for their decision in this. So scripture doesn't tell us that it doesn't matter what 
we do or the choices that we make. It, it, it holds us responsible for what we do. It says that our choices really make a difference in our own lives and in the course of history. All right, so that being the case, what do we do with this phrase, free will? Right, here's a question somebody sent in in a little box here. It seems as though free will is an ugly term or something. All over the Bible, it speaks about the choices that we make. So I'm a bit confused about what you are trying to convey about free will and choices. And, and, and you know, that, that, that question is coming from, we, we tend to interact with free will in a little bit of an antagonistic way. And, and we're... we're interacting with a certain version of free will, a certain version that people assume that is then used to turn around and deny things that are clearly taught in the Bible. And that's what we have a problem with. But the, but the question to ask, you know, if somebody asks, well, do you believe in free will? Do you believe that we have free will? Or what does is, what is, uh, you know, election have to do with free will? Right? The, the question to ask back first is always, what do you mean by free will? How would you say, if we had free will, how would you describe that, right? Uh, I think just at a a popular level, um, you know, it's often meant by free will is that we make willing, meaningful choices that we are responsible for, right? That uh, we decide, and we decide according to what what we want to do, and we're held responsible for what we we decide. And and we've already seen that clearly the Bible uh, teaches that. But uh, there's, there's a little bit of a philosophical distinction here. And let me just pull in a couple of terms that might not be familiar just to help us understand that there's... There's a couple of different versions of free will that are important for us to, to recognize, right? Because often people mean free will in the terms of libertarian free will, right? So this libertarianism, which is, don't think like Gary Johnson, right? This isn't political libertarianism. Uh, but, but libertarian free will in classic Arminianism is libertarian. Uh, libertarians hold that human beings are free in a way that is incompatible with divine determinism. And so they deny divine determinism. If God has determined what is to take place, then that would contradict free will in this sense, and therefore God hasn't determined, because that wouldn't allow us to have free will. So Scott Christensen says, libertarian freedom of choice comes about when we have the ability to choose contrary to any prior factors that influence our choice. Right? No matter what, I've got to be able to do otherwise. Any, any factors, including external circumstances, our motives, desires, character and nature, and of course, God himself. None of those things can determine my choice. Not even my own motives, desires, and character. At any moment, I've got to be able to choose in a way that contradicts all that. Otherwise, I don't have free will, and including uh, God's choice. God is in control of history, but he exercises that control so as to not interfere with man's free will. Libertarian free will is often called the freedom of contrary choice, right? Any moment, my choices and decisions are totally undetermined by anything else, uh, anything else outside of me and anything else inside of me as well. Now, so right away, let's just raise this question. We're handling these things quickly, I know. But does the Bible teach libertarian free will? 
You know, obviously it doesn't use any of those words. Um, but are the concepts there? Well, uh, we, we've seen in this class that, that no, the, the unregenerate will is constrained by the sinful nature. Right? So, we'll explore this in our next section in a moment, but uh, our, our will is free in the sense that we always do what we most want to do. But in another way, you know, our, our will is enslaved in the sense that we only do what we most want to do, right? And uh, you know, we could argue this out after if you want, but you, you'll, you'll never do anything other than what, given everything considered, you most want to do, right? Even if somebody's holding a gun to your head and asking for your money, the thing you most want to do is hand over your money. You might not feel free in that moment, but you're making a willing decision given the fact that you'd rather hand over your money than lose your life. So you always do what you most want to do, and you only do what you most want to do. Well, the problem is... What do you want to do? Because uh, at the same time, as, as you know, Bill did an excellent job teaching us, fallen man only wants to sin. And so he needs to be set free. He needs to be liberated by grace in order to want Christ. All right? Uh, but even still, once that happens, even the regenerate will, even believers are under the sovereign decree of God. And, and, and so our, our, our wills are not libertarian in the Bible because of those two things. Because we always will according to our nature. And when we are unbelievers, when we are fallen, our nature only wants one thing and it's opposed to God until God changes our nature. And believers and unbelievers are like, our wills are always under the, the sovereignty of God. Now, now, this is not a unique to this is not a unique problem to the doctrines of grace because if you think about it you know the, the, even arminianism which arminian that's just a, a, a term to use to describe people who who don't agree with these truths um, but but they would hold that god knows the future most of them would right god knows everything that's going to happen and so in in one sense everything that's going to happen is already determined it's already going to happen. So your, 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 your will, you know, is not totally unrestricted. Your choices are not totally without any other controlling element. They're, they're determined. So uh, I think that's a problem for, for Arminians who want to hold the libertarian free will. All right, two other questions to raise quickly. Uh, one, is libertarian free will even possible? I mean, just think about it. Is uninfluenced, undetermined choice a reality in this world? Is that something that we, we get to experience? And related to that, and this is really interesting here, and I don't want to give anybody a nosebleed with this one, but is libertarian free will even free will? Alright, think about it. If my choices cannot be caused by anything, including my own desires, in what sense can we say my choices are free? Don't they just become arbitrary? You know, I've done a little bit of reading in the, in the philosophical literature on free will, and it's interesting that this is a problem that, that even secular philosophers recognize. A guy named Robert Keane says, Events that are undetermined, such as quantum jumps in atoms, happen merely by chance. So if free actions must be undetermined, as libertarians claim, it seems that they too would happen by chance. 
But how can chance events be free and responsible actions, right? Let me just give an illustration. Maybe that'll help us think through that. Let's say my whole life I knew I'm going to become a doctor. And that's what I always wanted to do. And I had explored medical school options and, and you know, I'd, I'd kind of planned out where I'm going to land in terms of my practice. And I'd, you know, maybe I'd shadowed a doctor at some point and and so this is just clear this is what I've always wanted to do and then the moment that I go to choose a major in college I just for some reason inexplicable to me decide to to sign up for Icelandic mythology or something like that Uh, would we say that that was free like that that hey Great, I, I'm choosing according to my free will, right? There, there's, there's nothing about me. There's nothing about my character. There's nothing about my desires that determined for me to choose in that way. I just arbitrarily decided to do that. Well, libertarians would say, that's what free will is. But I think there's something about us that says, no, <laughs> that doesn't seem free. Because it seems more free when, I, when I'm able to do what, what I want to do and what, I, what my motives ha- have something to do with my personal history. Right? So another way to think about that, if my choices are not a, decis- a decisive result of my motives, in what sense are they praiseworthy or blameworthy? Right? Think of it like this. Sam Storm says, How can a man be praised for preferring charity or stinginess, for example, if both deeds were equally preferable to him, miraculously lacking any preferability at all? Do we not praise a man for giving generously to the poor because we assume he is of such an antecedent character that such a deed appears more preferable to him than withholding his money? If there is nothing about the man that inclines him to prefer generosity, if the act of giving money is no more preferable to him than the act of withholding it, is he worthy of praise for giving, right? If somebody did something generous because that's what his character led him to do, we would say, great, glad you have that kind of character. But if you turn around and say, why'd you do that? And he just says, I don't know. Just free will decision, right? That, 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 it doesn't seem the same, same way that that would be commendable. And, and, and you see, contrary to libertarianism, Scripture teaches that we do according to our nature. And, and that does not undermine, but rather affirm, genuine human freedom. And all right, this viewpoint is referred to as compatibilism. Right? Compatibilists hold that human beings are free in a way that is compatible with divine determinism. Scott Christensen says, A distinctly biblical form of compatibilism holds that there is a dual explanation for every choice that humans make. God determines the choices of every person, yet every person freely makes his or her own choices. Thus, divine sovereignty is compatible with human freedom and responsibility. In this model, people are free when they voluntarily choose what they most want to choose as long as their choices are made in an unhindered way. Biblical compatibilism says that our choices proceed from the most compelling motives and desires we have, which in turn is conditioned on our base nature, whether good or evil. Alright, just two quick kind of classic verses that illustrate what he's describing as this, you know, this dual explanation for everything that happens. Um, Genesis 50 verse 20. 
Joseph, this is after he's been sold into slavery and become second in command in Egypt. His brothers come to him and, and you know, they seek his forgiveness. And this is what he tells them. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, those, those sayings in the, in the Hebrew text are absolutely parallel. He says, this, what, this event, this selling of me into slavery, you meant it. And you meant it for evil. Right? But God also meant it. Same, same circumstances, same event. God determined this would happen as well. For good. So, same thing, different intentions. And they are responsible for their choice and the evil intent in their heart. But running parallel to that and underneath it, there is the decision of a sovereign God for these things to take place. For Joseph to be sold into slavery and with God's good purposes. And, and, and that's important for us to recognize is that God can intend circumstances and circumstances that include the sinful choices of creatures without having evil intent. And, you know, what, maybe think of it like this. If, if somebody is approaching me and going try, trying to take my life and out of self-defense, I take out a gun and shoot them. All right? Uh, I didn't intend for them to die. Right? What I, my, my, my intent in this is for me to not die, right? Uh, I, I want to live to see another day. Uh, but, but in that event, they, they die as well. So, in, in a similar way, God can intend circumstances that include people of their own wills and their own desires with the evil that's inside of them producing things that are sinful. And God is not intending evil in those circumstances. He's intending His good purposes. That's what Genesis 50 is saying. Our Acts 2.23, another clear illustration of this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there's the, there's the plan of God. There is what Acts 4 describes as whatever God's hand and plan predestined to take place. That's what's happening in the death of Christ. And it is also the deed of lawless men who are held responsible for what is in their heart. In what they have decided to do. They, they did exactly what they wanted to do and God holds them responsible for it even as they are fulfilling God's purposes and plan. Alright, here's a, a libertarian assumption. Right? If I can't do otherwise then I can't be held responsible. Now, the way that, that's put is ought implies can. Right? If, if God says, I should do something, then I ought to be able to. Now, I don't know how you do that with the Bible, which says, be holy as I am holy. Uh, God commands us to do that, and I don't think we're able to do that, right? Uh, so, that, that just doesn't really hold up scripturally. But, but the assumption is, unless I'm able to do A or B, right? If I can only do A, and God says that I need to do B, then I can't be held responsible for that, um, What's interesting is that 
that's not a new objection. Right? This is the exact objection that Paul raises in Romans 9 verse 19. He says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can he find fault with us? How can he hold us accountable if his will is irresistible? Right? If we have to do what he wills, how can he punish us? For our sin, if it fulfills his will. So, you know, and I, Paul has an interesting way of responding to that. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? But the point is that that's not a new uh, objection that's coming up here. But the, is this assumption uh, biblical? And, 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 and does it even make sense, right? So what, what people are doing when they raise that is they're taking philosophical assumptions. Maybe they don't know that that's what those are. And they're reading them into the Bible and saying, this, this has to line up with my assumptions. I assume that unless you can do otherwise, you can't be held responsible. And so, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible in a way that agrees with those assumptions. But, but is that even true, right? Let, let me raise this kind of thought experiment, a couple thought experiments for you. Um, Let's say, you know, all of a sudden, you guys didn't know this was happening, but back, back there, Kenneth closed that door and he locked them. And uh, you're just sitting here and you're, and you're listening to the teaching and uh, mystery of mysteries, um, you decide to stay behind and continue listening to the teaching. Uh, right? You're, you're enjoying it, you're, you're benefiting, and so you're, you're sitting where you are, but the door's locked. Alright, so you, you can't get out of the room. You have to be in here. But you want to be in here. And you're sitting there and you're learning and you're receiving, right? Uh, are you responsible for your decision to stay in the room? Well, you couldn't have done otherwise, but you're still doing what you want to do. And so, Pastor Peter's going to step in and say, hey, you get extra points in heaven for attending school of the word, right? Whether or not the doors are locked, right? So just, it, it, it doesn't hold. Or, or let me give, this one's a little, a little bit more of a science fiction scenario. But um, let's say... You know, I just wanted to take Burtis out. Uh, and by that, not out to dinner, but kill him. Um, but I, I wanted Lester to, to do that. And, uh, but I didn't want to like, get too involved and interfere. He's, he's willing in, in his desires. And maybe I'm also like some neurological specialist. And I develop something that I can, I can control something that... Uh, so I, I, want, I want Lester to, to shoot and, and kill Burtis. Um, but, I've, so I've got this mechanism that, I want him to do that all on his own. But if, if it looks like he's not going to go through with it, I've got a button I can press that's going to override his brain and go ahead and make him go forward with the deed. But Lester, with the, own, uh, with, with the malice that's inside of him, willingly kills Burtis and I never have to press the button. All right, is, is he responsible for what he did? He did what he wanted to do. He did what he wanted to do according to the evil that was in his own heart. He couldn't have done otherwise. That's all he could have done. But he still, uh, knowing Lester, took Burtis out. So, um, just uh, that doesn't really hold well uh, philosophically. So, uh, with that foundation in place, I think that serves us when you then go to approach certain questions um, like God's sovereignty and its relation to the fall. And uh, very unwise with, with, you know, five minutes left, let me uh, go ahead and address that question. Um, Alright, so, uh, should we say that God ordained the fall? Uh, here's a question somebody sent in. Was the fall in God's will and purpose? If not, 
how can we say that all choices are within his will? Is this an exception? And, and, and if we you know, flip back to those passages that describe God's complete control over all things, I mean, I, I agree with the questioner here that there's no reason that that would be accepted from that. So, in the same way that God planned the cross, which was the most horrific event in, in history, but for his purposes and glory and the good he desired to accomplish, a consistent reading of, of scripture would also include the fall in God's, in God's sovereign plan and decree. Uh, the Westminster Confession puts it like this, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God manifest themselves so completely in his providence that it extends even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. But they go on to say this, However, the sinfulness comes from the creatures alone and not from God who because he is most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. Alright, so, um, taken together, what we just learned, can we also say, did Adam sin of his own free will? And the Bible would lead us to say, yes. Because God's sovereignty is compatible with our freedom and responsibility. The fact that God... Uh, planned for the fall does not in any way undermine the fact that Adam sinned of his own free choice. And, and, and he was, was created morally innocent. Uh, nothing about his nature constrained him to fall. Right? It's not like God set it up and stacked the deck and said, you know what, I'm going to create you and you're just going to have a big hankering for that particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and, and you know, everything else is going to taste like mayonnaise to you, which, you know, that, that's the perfect illustration for me because that's straight from the bowels of Satan. Um, but... Uh, you know, God didn't make Adam in any way to be inclined toward evil. Uh, he didn't set him up to fail. He, he, he had everything going for him. In fact, he had everything that Jesus had available to him and more. And Jesus never sinned. Uh, he had the benefit of an unfallen nature, but he was created with a nature that could fall. Uh, here's a, another question somebody sent in. In the school of word about man's radical depravity, Bill said that we sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. So here's my question. So what about Adam and Eve? There was no sin before the fall, so why did they sin if we sin because we are sinners? Well, when, ben, when Bill said that, he was talking about our fallen condition, right? Ever since the fall... We are now in sin, and we sin because we are, we are sinners. But uh, Adam and Eve were not created as, as sinners. They were created with a nature that was morally good, but capable of falling. They were able to sin or not to sin. And, and somehow, and, and you know, we don't give a, get a lot of information about this, and so I, I, you know, I'm not attempting to take away what Paul describes as the mystery of lawlessness. But, but somehow, uh, through a weakness of will, they, they freely chose to embrace temptation and sin. And, and, and maybe there are character dispositions that they developed prior to disobeying God. I mean, you just read the account and you realize there's this conversation happening between Eve and the, and the serpent. One, why is the serpent on the garden? Why is he on the scene? Shouldn't he have been driven out? And then you find out later on that while this is happening, Adam is standing there passively observing what's taking place and then led by 
his wife that he's supposed to be leading in these circumstances to eat of the tree. So, so something about their, their dispositions and character formed in such a way that then led them to freely choose to, to embrace sin and therefore be held responsible for it. Alright, um, people have a problem with God's goodness, right? People have a problem with God's goodness in a fallen world, period. You know, how can a good and loving God exist if there's so much suffering and evil that takes place? But then you take that suffering and evil and you, and you put it under God's will in some way. And you take the fall and you put that as part of his plan. Right, so that, that, that makes us uncomfortable um, in part because the Bible is always distancing God in his holiness from, from sin as we should. Um, one thing that's helpful to realize, however you address this, is that this isn't unique to you know, what's called Calvinism. Uh, everybody's got to answer that question in one way or another, right? Um, even the Arminian God looks into the future, sees the, the reality of the fall, and says, yep, I'm still going to move forward with this plan. I'm still going to create the world because of some greater good. And in that version, the greater good is libertarian free will. It's, I want to make a world in which uh, people will freely choose and, and, and love me, and that might include people also freely rejecting me. But still, the Arminian God includes the fall in his plan in some way. And even if God doesn't know the future at all, he certainly knows the possibility. And so if, you know, if he rolls the dice and take, takes a risk and says, you know, let's see how this is going to go, uh, he still decided to move forward with uh, the reality that, and the likelihood that people would fall, and yet he thought the plan of creation was good enough to warrant that. So that's just to say, this isn't unique to... Um, exhaustive divine sovereignty. Everybody's got to answer this, this question in, in one way or another. All right? So, why? And at the end of the day, why? Why do this? Why did God include the fall in his plan? And there's a great dimension of mystery here. And, and I don't think we can remove that. Um, but even if we don't have a complete answer, we, we do have from the Bible, it tells us that God has has morally sufficient reasons for everything he does. And by definition, honestly, if you're going to believe in God, <laughs> that's included in the definition, right? What he does is right. And he's going to do things for the right reason. And as we know him and as we trust him, we know that's true of him. And as we stare into, the, into Calvary and the cross of Christ and know his, his goodness, that provides part of the framework as to how we, we answer this, this question. But at the same time, I think the Bible gives us some indications. It doesn't, it doesn't satisfy every curiosity. And if we're coming with kind of this loaded, man-centered perspective and demanding that God submit to our understanding and, and all that, then, then we're not going to be satisfied. But uh, it, does, it does lead us in a certain direction. Look, look at a couple of these verses. Romans 5, verse 8. It's a familiar verse. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And we love that verse. And, and, and we love it because it's telling us that despite our unworthiness, despite our sin, despite the fact that we provided nothing that motivated God to come to us, He showed His love and sent Christ to die. But, but notice that every phrase in that verse assumes a fallen world. Right? How does God show His love for us? He shows His love for us in this way. In that... While we were still sinners, which assumes a fall, Christ died. All right, well, where does death come from? Death comes from the fall for us. Right, so there, there's a demonstration of the love of God toward His people that is unique in the cross of Christ. And this demonstration of His love in redemption occurs only toward fallen people. So if you think of it like this, no fall no incarnation, no atonement, no demonstration of the love of God in this, in this way. Uh, I like to quote Andrew Peterson. He's one of my favorite songwriters. And in his song, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? He says, And when the world is new again, and the children of the King are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing, a better thing, to be more than merely innocent but to be broken, then redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up, and I'm waking up. And, and, and those are the kinds of storylines that we love. I mean, these are the kinds of stories we love to read, that we love to watch and film. It's not just when, when everything's okay and nothing bad ever happens. It, we, we long to see tales of redemption and rescue and when the night looked most dark then the dawn shines through and this is the story that God has told in his plan let me give you one other verse where the bible i think gives us an answer to this romans 9 verse 22 says what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. All right, so, so God wants to do these things and for our benefit. He wants to show his wrath and he wants to make known his power. And he, 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 as well as he wants to make known the riches of his mercy. And the full panorama of God's attributes of justice and mercy are only displayed through salvation and, and judgment. So, uh, sometimes people will ask, well, does that mean that we're just means to some end? God wants to be glorified and he just steamrolls over our lives to make that happen. Because, you know, he's got some sort of weird needy complex where he needs people to praise him. <laughs> I know I just loaded a lot into that question. Uh, uh, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> um, several reasons. One, God from all eternity is, is perfectly content and satisfied in himself. And doesn't need us. Doesn't need our worship. We don't add anything to him. So when we talk about glorifying God... We don't mean, you know, that, that God is this bucket that's three quarters of the way full and we, we run up and down and pour in the water that we have and 
oh, just so, so glad I'm here to glorify God, right? That's not how God is, is glorified. Uh, John Piper gives this illustration. He says, God's not some like watering trough that needs to be constantly refilled. He's, he's the mountain stream. And you glorify the stream by going and finding it to be a rich supply from which you receive and you uh, find your delight in. And so uh, God's glory is about satisfying us with his good. And that's what he wants. That's why God made, why does God make the world? He doesn't need to. He wants to share. He wants to share himself. He wants to share of his goodness with his creatures. And he wants them to delight in and glory in all that is true about him. Including all of these attributes. And so Daniel Johnson says, treating someone as an end not just a means to an end, requires seeking what is good for them. The greatest good for human beings is surely communion with God, presence with, and knowledge of God. So if God seeks as an end to bring human beings to the presence with and knowledge of himself, then he seeks their good as an end. But consider again the nature of glory. Divine glory is a display of God. What is a human's communion with God but a display of God to that human? Therefore, when God seeks the greatest good for human beings, he thereby seeks his glory. Jonathan Edwards is strikingly insisted on this point. He forcefully denies that God uses his people as a means to his glory because the flourishing of his people partially constitutes his glory. And that should transform our perspective and how we how we think about this, right? We're not just pawns being used for this thing called the glory of God. It, it, it is as God literally serves us and redeems us and reveals himself to us and brings us to himself and, and pours on our lives blessing after blessing. That is God being glorified. And that is what God eternally has been after. And the fact that God has planned and ordered creation and events in a way to maximize that for the benefit of the people that he loves does not, as we've seen, undermine the fact that all along the way, what everyone does, they are freely doing according to their desires and therefore are held responsible to them. Now, I don't pretend that this has cleared everything up for us. Um, But maybe it's provided a few more categories as you continue to think through and study this. Um, Trust you've been blessed by this study and and, and just um, reveling in the grace and mercy of God that's come to us. Uh, Thank you for your attention. Thank you for processing through this with us. Again, always available to interact further with you. Uh, If any any of you want to meet with us, just Send me an email. We'll have a conversation. Or if you just want to interact through email, we can do that too. But we want want you guys to be served. Uh, Next school to work class, I think is... uh, So we're going to do a break starting next week, next couple weeks. Uh, So prayer will be at 845. And and then on October 30th, um, Pastor Peter is going to start with a study of the Gospel of Matthew. So that's where we're heading next. Thank you so much for being here this morning.